What's up? This is Nick and Purjeet. And this is On Soccer. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of On Soccer. Today, we have a very, very special guest, someone who's been in the world of American soccer for, for forever, honestly, and someone who really has done a lot for the, for the beautiful game in this country and uh, someone who we're really excited to have on, you know, great soccer mind, lots of great analysis and, you know, stuff to talk about here. But yeah, please welcome to the show, uh, Thomas Rongen. How are you doing today? Thanks. Thanks for having me on uh, on your show, guys. Uh, it's been 40 plus years, correct, that I've been in this country when I arrived there as a young 21-year-old. So <laughs> I, I feel I've got it all, correct, from the grassroots level to the highest level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and just as an intro question that we like to ask all of our guests, uh, we know you have a very uh, historic career, and but what, how did you get started in, in soccer and what's your kind of origin story? Born and raised in, uh, in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, uh, which means if you're born in Amsterdam, you're an Ajax fan. And uh, I was very fortunate to go through the Ajax system at a, a younger age, where I was introduced to, uh, to Rinus Migels, who then became my coach in 1979 in Los Angeles. When as a 21-year-old, he asked me to join the former NESL, the North American Soccer League, where I ended up playing with my childhood hero, uh, Johan Cruyff. But again, my formative soccer years were in, in the Netherlands, uh, where I represented Ajax, uh, where I was able to play for the Dutch Olympic team. Uh, I was very fortunate to, to be part of a trip to the United States in 1978, where I fell in love with the country. And so the, the coach on that trip, Rinus Migos, who then became the coach of the Los Angeles Aztecs, shortly thereafter and then asked me to join him uh, and I never, never returned. Wow. Wait, so it, it must have been pretty interesting looking for soccer opportunities in this country in that time period. Was it like, like can you sort of talk about like what that process was like specifically looking for tea? Because I yeah, had the, back then. The, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the process was, was simple, quite frankly. And it's okay. one of those things where you have to be lucky. And, and I was, as I referenced, I was finishing my studies at the uh, CIOS, which is the Central Institute uh, of, uh, of Teaching. And I was in my last year, and I was part of the Dutch Olympic team. And we traveled to the United States. And as I said again, Rigos Migos, the great founder of Total Football, Clockwork Orange, Ajax in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, the 74 and 78 World Cup. Um, the way he went to Barcelona and brought Johan Cruyff with him and built La Masia and the way Barca still plays. I mean, you talk to Pep Guardiola, they all reference Rinus Migos and, and, and Johan Cruyff. And I was very fortunate to be on this trip to the United States where we played in LA, San Francisco, St. Louis, uh, and New York uh, against the uh, US Olympic team. And while we were actually flying over uh, this magnificent country, I was sitting next to Rinus Meagles, and I remember him looking down and going, that's the Grand Canyon. And I went like, 
that's pretty awesome. I would love to go there one day. And when I got that call, literally months later, he referenced that. He said, I remember you like the Grand Canyon. You might have an opportunity now to visit it. I want to bring you and offer you a, a contract with the Los Angeles Aztecs in the league where Pele obviously played, George Best, Beckenbauer, the great New York Cosmos, the Fort Lauderdale Strikers at that time, the LA Aztecs, the Washington Diplomats, and, and some of the MLS teams that still have adopted the uh, tradition of the NASL, the Seattle Sounders were there in the late 60s or late 70s, early 80s. The San Jose Earthquakes were there, obviously, and a lot of teams have adopted uh, still the old uh, tradition of uh, the way the NESL obviously uh, made an inroad in this, this country. And if you talk to quite a few of the 94 World Cup team members, from Eric Ronaldo to Alexi Lalas to Marcelo Balboa, Tab Ramos, uh, obviously Claudio Reyna, they all reference the NESL it's their first experience to watch a game, be it in San Jose for Eric Ronaldo with the earthquakes and George Best, be it Alexia Lalas in New York, watching the, the Cosmos with Pele, Tinelia, Beckenbauer, and the list goes on and on of superstars that were in that league. The Messi's and Ronaldo's were in that league between 75 and the early 80s. The league collapsed, unfortunately, um, but it, it, it had its foothold in the United States, and it really, um, you know, turned some laissez-faire fans into potential players and, and eventually U.S. national team uh, products. Yeah, and then you mentioned, you know, these big world stars like Pele, George Best. What was the appeal back then to come to America, you know, with a league that maybe wasn't as established as Europe? What, what do you think was like an appeal for those big players to come over? Most of them were in the later stages of their, their careers. Uh, you saw Trevor Francis in his heyday, uh, but most players were early 30s, mid 30s. Beat Gert Mueller, one of my teammates, the Fort Lauderdale Strikers, that was at that time still the leading, the all time leading goal scorer in World Cup history uh, for Germany. Beat Nene Kubias at, at 32, that played in four World Cups for, for Peru. Beat Beckenbauer, one of the great legends that. Uh, that won the World Cup with, with Germany and led Germany as a coach to the World Cup as well. And, and obviously, uh, Johan Cruyff. So they came here for uh, some good money. Uh, they came here to be able to play a few more years in a country that would give them an opportunity. So America uh, always and still is uh, a country that uh, a lot of foreign players look at in terms of lifestyle and in terms of trying to make a difference maybe. And that's what some of those players that I played with really tried to do, uh, to make a, a difference, to make inroads in this country, to show a beautiful game to people in this, this country. Um, and it allowed some of those big mega stars um, to finally breathe and, and, and walk cities without being recognized, which was for the big, big stars, obviously a big difference as well. So, uh, and if you talk to those guys that are still alive, they look at their American experiences as one of a very positive one uh, from a playing standpoint, uh, but more so from a, a, a lifestyle standpoint that they could provide their families uh, with those opportunities. And a lot of their children ended up coming back to the United States to study at American universities. Um, and, 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 you know, I, those are, are 
were very important factors for some of those older players to still financially do well for a few years and, and go on a adventure, which it really was back in those days. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. You know, I think it's very interesting to look at, you know, the 70s and 80s in American soccer landscape, because that really is what set the set the scene for where we are today. And, you know, how we got to like such a good stage that we're looking at, hopefully for the future today. But, you know, one thing about that time period specifically that I was curious about was I know that there were a lot of like things back then with like, you know, since the league and teams weren't as established, like a lot of teams would collapse or like leagues would collapse, stuff like that. Was it difficult to play um, in a country where the you know soccer system wasn't as established? Like, did you ever have intentions of leaving? Because like you know, I saw you very much obviously stuck it out in the U.S. Um, but yeah, was was that process hard or difficult, or what was that like for you? Yeah, it was very interesting. I was part of a of a real roller coaster ride. Hey, um, in 1979, after a month, I became uh, uh, the union rep for the Los Angeles Aztecs mm-hmm. as a young foreigner, basically, and and. We went on strike, but quite a few of the bigger international stars did not want to do that and forego, obviously, their, their income. So it's very interesting to see that some teams had uh, guys pulled the streets, other, other, other didn't. Uh, so there was a fracture there between the union already and, and, um, and the establishment, which, was, which were the owners. That 80, there was a, a contract, finally, a TV contract. But the numbers were so bad that they pulled the plug on it halfway through. Wow. And that's, and then that's when the league started to, to fracture. We went from literally for one year from um, 12 teams to 26 teams with the knowledge that the TV contract was out there. After that year, which was 1980, we went from 26 teams back to 14. And then in 82, 83, when the New York Cosmos, which was owned by Warner Brothers Communication, pretty much said, you know what? We thought we could make money on this endeavor. It's not going to happen because TV is saying no right now. When they started pulling out, all of a sudden, uh, the league started collapsing. We went down to 12, 10 teams, and in 85, eventually, all folded. Some continued in the, in the indoor uh, which at that time was pretty hot throughout the country. Uh, and, and that also fizzled after a while. And fast forward to 94, when we hosted the World Cup with the premise that the U.S. would have a pro league a year or two later, which happened in, in 96 with MLS. Uh, those years in, in the NASL were, were wild years, quite frankly. You never knew what to expect when you traveled on the road, who you would face. Yeah. Um, teams would change names. Teams would appear or disappear uh, quite quickly based on financial losses. Uh, you had a lot of entrepreneurs trying to get in to make money that didn't happen. Uh, so after a while, without a, a real structure, uh, which MLS has learned lessons from, obviously, uh, the league just couldn't sustain uh, what was going on because it was really teared down from the top and nothing on the on the bottom there was no foundation and eventually uh, the league that still i think to this day has an impact on 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 mls and and, and the way the game is being perceived uh, you had quite a few uh, adventurous players out here that made their mark on the american scene and made a mark on you young players that started playing the game uh, because of those great names 
Yeah, and, and you mentioned young players. Uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about your career as, as a scout. Um, just a question that I had personally was, you know, we, me and Brigitte are big U.S. men's national team fans, and you see players like a Graham Zussi or a Brad Evans, Chris Wondolowski, who may not have a big youth national team career or playing with the youth development program, and they eventually make it to a World Cup, but then there's players that, you know, are highly popular on the youth, youth national team uh, stage, and maybe they don't make it as a professional. Do you, do you, I'm just curious what your insight into how those, you know, who makes it and who, who doesn't really make it in the professional game? Yeah, that's interesting. When I, I coached um, in its inaugural year, Major League Soccer in the Tampa Bay uh, Mutiny with, with Carlos Valderrama and, and, and Roy Lasseter and, and uh, rookie uh, Stevie Ralston, um, Clay Coyman, Frank, Frankie Yellup, we, we ran away with the Supporters' Shield. I became the coach of the year and I moved on to Boston to coach Michael Burns and Alexi Lalas for the Kraft family in 79. And I moved on to D.C. after Bruce Arena became the head coach and became the head coach of D.C. United, won the championship in 99. Uh, and then after D.C. United, um, I, we left on mutual terms. Uh, there was a vacancy with the other 20 team. And, and Bruce Arena asked me to coach the other 20 team. So I took the, the reins of the other 20 team in uh, 201-ish, 202, and went to my first World Cup in 203. And just to give you an idea uh, what that team was like, uh, it was Drew Moore, right back, Chet Marshall, Steve Cochran, um, Ricardo Clark, uh, Bobby Convey, uh, Mike McGee, Eddie Johnson, uh, Santino Caranta, uh, Freddie Adu, a very young Freddie Adu. Um, uh, who else was on that team? Clint Dempsey was on that team, although Clint didn't see a lot of minutes because he was a late inclusion. And that team was predominantly non-professionals, with the exception of Freddie had not signed yet for uh, DC, so he wasn't a pro. Uh, Eddie Johnson might have just signed for Dallas in MLS and Santino Caranta for DC. Uh, so there was two pros on that team and the rest was predominantly uh, college players and one or two guys that didn't even play in, in, in college. And I found Clint Dempsey in a, in Nacogdoche, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> playing with his older brother in an illegal Mexican league. Wow. <laughs> so when I saw that, I said, there's going to be other players to be, on earth, you know, um, and I, I try to do that, obviously. Fast forward, I'm just going to piece this together in, so I went to three under, under 20 World Cups, 203 in the Emirates, 207 in Canada, where, where we beat Brazil and, and, and Uruguay. That was the group with Michael Bradley, uh, um, Josie Altador, um, uh, Robbie Rogers, Sal Zizzo, quite a few other MLS and MLS Anthony Wallace. And, and we beat some very good teams, teams like Uruguay that had Luis Suarez and, and, and Cavani up front, for instance, playing against two college guys, uh, <laughs> Jules Valentin and, and uh, Nathan Sturgis that was at Clemson, one was at Clemson and Wake Forest. So again, Luis Suarez at that time was an Ajax, had been sold for 20 million, you know, which at that time was a lot of money, playing against college guys. Uh, and a year later, we're in Mexico uh, prepping for uh, a tournament with Mexico, Argentina, and Uruguay. And I'm playing a friendly game 
against a team that's staying also in the same hotel but played in a youth tournament, another tournament, and by Starbuck from, uh, from Norway. And halfway through the game, I walk up to the coach. It's a, it's a friendly game in, in prep to our first game against uh, Mexico. Um, and I said, I like your number 10. And he goes, he's American. I go, what? <laughs> and, you know, pretty, pretty crazy. But uh, actually, I said, do you mind if I walk up to him and, and ask him? Because I was just going, great. It's a Norwegian team. We're in Mexico. And this kid is, uh, is, is American. Um, <laughs> So, in fact, uh, you know, he was. I brought him to the under-20 team. He played probably about 20 or 30 times for the for our national team as well. Played for the uh, NYCFC or the Red Bulls. Uh, Mikel Discarut. Oh, yeah. So, oh, wow. I, I knew that <laughs> we, we could unearth players in the United States, in places where we, we not always look, um, and that we could still unearth players outside of our country because you looked at the, the, the big the big nations in the world, there were quite a few, and even more so now, dual citizens. Yeah. And I stumbled upon uh, four players at Hertha Berlin that had all US passports because military people go to Germany, marry you know, German women, and all of a sudden, here you get Anthony Brooks, here you have uh, Jerome Kieselwetter, here you have uh, Julian Green, here you have AJ, uh, here you have uh, 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 Bobby Wood. Uh, so I was the one um, in my scouting capacity that found guys, you know, within our country and found guys outside of the country. And Sersinio Dest obviously is, a, is, is the latest great example of finding guys outside of the system uh, that were either born here or have a US passport, but are developed somewhere else, which was in the Netherlands, obviously. Uh, but we're still finding players now. Um, and I think we're doing a pretty good job at it, although some people say we, we, we don't, uh, in, in finding other Clint Dempsey's along the line. And also, let's face it, the, the MLS clubs have made a real, real difference in player development. If you look now at the players that go over, most of them are attached to a MLS uh, uh, club. Uh, be it Tyler Adams, be it Weston McKinney, be it uh, Reyna, you know, the list goes on and on of guys that now are being developed. And even Christian Pulisic was here until he was 16 years old. So in essence, his real development has hap had happened already at that age. You go past 16, it's fine-tuning uh, the mentality and, 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 and tactical, uh, the specifics of tactical and human, but the body of work was done in the United States so it shows you that we, we can develop great players and it shows you that we can find players uh, still in, in different ways. The first team in 203 that I talked about, I, I coached, was it, I said two uh, professionals in MLS. Fast forward to the last other 17s or 20s, all professionals and mostly in Europe already, which is remarkable what we've done in, in you know, the last 20 years. Got you. And then, you know, uh, just to go more in depth on that, something that I was specifically, you know, just thinking about is that in terms of like the player development and the talent pipeline for U.S. soccer, it's obviously very unique in America just because like, you know, college soccer, all that stuff, things like that. Um, I'm wondering what needs to change about like the American, like, I guess, structure for player development in order to facilitate 
our ability to find a new player. Cause like, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not sure if like, you know, is, is college soccer something that's like very strategic for athletes to go into? Is it better to go into like academies? Like what about American soccer or the, that pipeline needs to change to more, find more talent, you know? I think the pathway has, has, has to be clear and it's becoming clear. Back yeah. Into a, when I became coach in the 20 team, we didn't have a clear pathway. I'm using again, Clint Dempsey as an example, play in a league, a legal league, Mexico league against older men with his older brother. And that's the way he, he uh, figured it out uh, because he didn't have either financial means or it was too far for him from Nacogdocia. The closest was Dallas, it was an hour and a half away to go to a, a better club. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that within the structure, all clubs need to understand, you know, w- what their what their role is within that, from recreational, pushing on guys to travel, from a travel team to a, a better travel team. Um, eventually, I think then the next step would be if you are close and within a distance of an MLS team, it's going to an MLS team. That's, that's, that's the pathway. Uh, it is, unfortunately, not playing high school soccer because it's a detriment to player development. It's probably... And, and there will be exceptions still. Jordan Morris is a great example. There's still players that probably go to four years to college and, and will be good MLS players. And maybe one or two will be part of our senior national team, although it gets harder and harder. Uh, whereas in, you know, again, 202, you look at that group that I had that weren't professional yet, from Drew Moore to, to uh, uh, Chet Marshall to Clint Dempsey, um, Ricardo Clark, that became players, very important players for our U.S. national team. They were all in college. Most of them finished four years. Some left a little bit earlier because of Generation Adidas, uh, that Sunil Gulati had, uh, had installed, that allowed them to leave as sophomores, freshmen, juniors. Uh, Clint Dempsey uh, did that um, and went into the draft and then you know, was given financial means to finish his college while he was, while he was playing because there wasn't a, a system that made, made sense, quite frankly. So MLS was very proactive in, in, in that. If I had to recommend anything to a player right now is start and let the game be, be the teacher, uh, find a good coach at a club, uh, get seen by potentially an, an MLS team or foreign scouts. There's, and, and be part of, you know, which is still what somewhat elite, um, be part of what used to be the developmental academy that I was one of the initiators, founders of when I was with the U.S. Uh, Soccer Federation, the think tank. Uh, we try to come up with a, with a format that made sense to get more competitive games. Um, yes, it was based on funding. It was based on the bigger clubs being part of that, which still didn't include a lot of minorities, quite frankly, areas of the countries that, that didn't have a great uh, club system or healthy financial structure or facilities or good coaches or whatever it might be, where there still potentially are great players. Uh, and I think that the current one that's run by MLS is, um, is at this point in time, probably the best option uh, for serious players uh, to start out with. Um, you know, 
I'm, I'm not part of the youth scene now for the last six or seven years. I've become funded, obviously. So I don't know what has really changed uh, in the inner workings. So I'm, I'm taking a look from afar. I left U.S. soccer as the um, head scout in 2018. So I've been a little bit removed on what's what's going on. But, but from the outside looking in, uh, at the amount of players that we are producing right now, uh, both domestically for MLS and also internationally for some big clubs, be it uh, Juventus or, or Dortmund or uh, Barcelona with, with Test as well, or Conrad de la Fuente that's part of, who's come off the bench a few times for Barca. I think we've done a pretty good job with a still emerging young soccer nation. Yeah, and, and when you mentioned that mis, mixed discord story, I thought that was, you know, so interesting. <laughs> I'm, you know, you've worked with, with those U20 teams, you know, so many players that eventually went on to go pro, you know, a Kellen Rowe, a Dylan Powers, Perry Kitchen, young Michael Bradley's, Josie Altidore's. Yeah. Do you have any other, like, inter- you know, stories with those young players where you could see that all oh, these guys are going to make it or, or just interesting stories regarding them? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, um, in the early stages, and still to a certain extent, I felt we were, you know, Technically, we're, we're at times inferior. Uh, you know, tactically, we're at times inferior. Although on, on any given day in, in one-off games, you know, obviously we didn't go to the last World Cup. We always get out of group play against some good teams. We sometimes get past the round of 16. On one occasion in um, with Bruce Arena, we went actually to the round of eight and, and maybe should have should have beaten Germany on a very controversial handball. So now you can say, listen, Bruce Arena took a team with uh, Lennon Donovan, uh, Claudio Reyna, Eddie Pope, uh, Jeff Agus, uh, Tony Sane, who was a revelation in, in, in Japan and Korea during that World Cup, and takes them all the way, beat Portugal with Ronaldo and old Nani and all those big names, and, and almost knocks off Germany, and maybe deserved to knock off Germany to get to the semifinals of the World Cup. And then you look, now you go, was that team better than this one? Is there something wrong? But those are, those are exceptions. With the 17s and 20s too, we get out of group play most of the time. We've beaten, I gave you examples of, uh, um, of beating Uruguay and, and uh, Brazil. And you look at those lineups, five or six players of Brazil are starting for the senior national team, including Marcelo, including, including uh, Thiago Silva that played in that game against Josie Altidore. Josie Altidore manhandled him. Freddie Adu made a fool out of Marcelo. Uh, yeah. You know, and now fast forward, look where Freddie Adu is now and where Marcelo is still at. Unfortunately, they, they took different, uh, different pathways uh, and, and one became more successful than the others because the Marcelos of the world were going back to Real Madrid and most of our players are going back to either college or still at that time an inferior, maybe MLS. And, and that's where between ages 17, 18 and 20, 21, 22, that's where that big, big gap is, the college gap where guys have to make a decision. Where do I go? I haven't been seen yet, but I'm talented. I have no other options than to take a scholarship somewhere to play just three months out of the year. Whereas, as I said again, Marcelo, Luis Suarez go back to Ajax, train, five times a week and play uh, in good competitions as pros um, 
and I think that that has changed. You know, we 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 now have players that will go back to Juventus, Barcelona, Dortmund, Ajax. You know, whatever it might be, Chelsea, uh, for that matter, Manchester City with Zef Stack uh, with with Steph, Zef, uh, uh, Stefan. So. You know, you can see that we've, 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 we've come a long way. Does that mean we're going to win the World Cup? Eventually we will. Could we compete in, in 2026? I think we can because that group that we're talking about right now will be in their, in their prime. And these guys are getting now every week big games uh, within their leagues, but also in Champions League, Europa League. We get quite a few. Look at Timothy Weah scoring for Lidl uh, yesterday. Look at Weston McKinney, although the lost against Porto starting. Look at Serginho Dest, who has to go a long way, by the way, because Mbappe took him to the cleaners. Still, <laughs> you know, those are experiences that, that these players never got uh, when I entered the youth soccer scene. And, and even when I left the youth soccer scene in 2018. Uh, so we, we, we we're doing a pretty, uh, pretty good job. But going back to, uh, so I felt that we were naive. So I used to go once every two years because the World Cup in the 20s and 17s are every, every two years. I used to take a trip to Argentina. I had a very good relationship with, uh, with their head coach who happened to be there also for quite a few years. And I would just say, be nasty. And he understood because you go there, those players, the only way out, out of the favela is to do anything you can, including selling your mother. Uh, to be a pro, that's the way out for them, and and they would pinch, you know, uh, a nipple on a set piece. They would grab testicles on a on a set piece, and the reaction of those players, because it was always a new group for me, were always remarkable. Literally come to a still stand, look at me, because that's what they have done their whole lives in youth soccer, where coaches are very dominant and 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 overcoach, quite frankly. And saying, Coach, did you see that? So I, I've gotten calls from um, um, from from players that say those experiences or experiences in I would use take them once every two years to Amsterdam as well, and I would, which was um, a fine line for me because I dealt with with minors. Uh, I let them. My, my, my talk at the last dinner was after we played the Dutch national team was guys who were in Amsterdam and enjoy on the bus at 10 a.m. And they all go, oh my God, we have no curfew in Amsterdam. This is great. And I get guys coming in at two or three, knocking on my door, bleeding, going, coach, I don't understand why this guy hit me. Or coach, uh, somebody took my, uh, my wallet at gunpoint. Literally happened. <laughs> but they also said, they also said, now, or fast forward, when I talk to some of these guys still, which I do, that was the best experience, coach, because I became street savvy. I understand now what you're, you're trying to say. I, 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 you know, we were too naive, quite frankly. So those were, 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 were important moments uh, outside of the technical and tactical development of players that we, we, we become more streetwise so that we can use that skill set, that mentality in big games now against teams that utilize that in Uruguay. I mean, you know, back then, Luis Suarez was already a biter. You know? <laughs> and, and I must say, both Nathan Sturges and, 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 and Jules Valentin dealt with it greatly because of 
some of the prior experiences having to play against Argentina, understanding it's that nasty, the game might get nasty. It was a big fight after the game um, on the field, going into the locker room. Police came there as well because Uruguay, uh, very upset. They lost against the United States. There were fists thrown, but we, we didn't back down. You know, it was a great thing. I remember Michael Brentley just going chest to chest with Suarez. Bring it on, baby. Look at the scoreboard there. 3-2, uh-huh. USA. <laughs> And, 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 you know, those are, they might sound silly, you know, uh, and, 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 but, but they become important in terms of confidence, in terms of, you know, understanding that we can play in the best and be successful for the following reasons. And development is, is, is huge, obviously. We're talking about all these components that are part of it. To me, one of the most important components is how does a, how does a guy every day deal with his surroundings and be a good pro. And that's why I, when I used to go on the road to scout for Bruce Arena and also lay good lines with clubs that we needed the players from in, in Europe uh, to come in for qualifying games in, in particular, I would go to watch a game, but I would really go and watch training. Um, and that was with my, my under 20 teams. If I had to go to see Julian Green that I could potentially bring in, or Jonathan Brooks, that I could potentially bring in for my 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 under twenties, because I wanted to look at training habits more than anything else. Because at the end of the day, there's a lot of guys that are pretty darn good, they're pretty even. But I even looked at: Do they want to win in the four v four small game during practice? Are they the first ones on the field? Are they the last ones to leave? I thought it was important for eighteen year olds because I was taught by Johan Cruyff. To stay longer at home, my skills, or are they lazy? Do they care about their teammates? And and you know what? Games itself don't really always give you that picture. And if you sit there with 10 scouts, everybody can say, Yeah, he's got great technical ability. Oh, he's a box-to-box guy. He's got a set of lungs. Uh, he is, and that's just again. You know, we scout players once, twice, maybe three times in, in, in games. And in particular, when they're young, you don't necessarily in this game see the bad habits that they could develop over time as young players in practice if it's not corrected. And I found some guys that I said to Bruce Arena, Bruce, they'll never make it. I'm telling you, you can, you can bring them in, but they will cost you. You can't trust them for the following reasons. But the last game was pretty decent. I said, yes, he was pretty decent, but he will make a big mistake sooner or later because his habits in training are the following. All right? Turns from his teammates when you're down one nothing. Uh, plays always well when they're up 3-1. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, things like that that I looked at in, in, in practice to me. At the end of the day, when everything else is equal, those little things, Bob Bradley talks about the little things, which is normally the approach and the mentality. Look at Michael Bradley, he's an incredible student of the game. And then we look at some great youth successes that have failed, Freddie Adu being the greatest because he wasn't able and equipped to deal with the rigorous demands of the day-to-day practice and environment where you have to show to your coach that you belong and, and deserve a starting position and not based on, um, I've scored 30 goals for the other 17 team. 
I'm entitled to start. We had, we had entitlement for a while, in particular, I think, with the under-17 program in Bradenton, although it was very good for a while. It created Lennon Donovan, Demarcus Beasley, Bobby Carnby, Eddie Johnson, Josie. <clears throat> it also, uh, for the middle group that played quite a few games, became, when they entered MLS, uh, the real world, because Bradenton wasn't the real world. Everything was given to them a sense of entitlement and then also not understanding when they didn't play to look at themselves. And that was my experience with some of those guys that came through Bradenton um, that felt entitled and, and, and blamed coaches or other players for their uh, inability to be on the starting 11 sheet. Got you. And then, you know, I, uh, just to elaborate, like, you know, as we've touched on throughout this podcast, I think it's amazing how you've interacted with so many, you know, established professionals within soccer, whether it be an American or just like worldwide global stars. Um, one, one of my dad's biggest idols that he just like, you know, used to talk to me a lot about as a kid was Cryf and like, you know, like on my TV screen, like that footage of total, total uh, football, 74 world cup, it was always on. So, and, you know, I, I've seen your interviews about Cryf about how you say that, like, he's such an intelligent guy and that even if he took like the SATs that he would probably get an insane score. So I was just wondering, you know, what are some uh, lessons, like lessons that you've taken away from Cryf and you've applied to your career, either on the pitch or just in life in general? Um, so, so many of them. And it was my coach, Renus Meagles, was Jorn Cruyff's coach and developed Jorn yeah. Cruyff, but both eventually after the 74 World Cup when the Dutch team you know, hammered Brazil, Argentina, unfortunately lost against Germany in the final. Uh, uh, they were my inspiration and my foundation of my coaching career and my philosophy, the way I approached uh, the game. Rinus was very organized, uh, great in-game coaching, might always make the right technical changes within the 11 to tweak things or to bring in a sub that could make a difference as well. Croy, for the, on the other hand, was attention to detail, which I wasn't accustomed to. And, and he would push me to greater heights to, to look at little things. And, and uh, from understanding my, my own strength and weaknesses, when he came up to me and said, Thomas, you're, you're an okay player, but you're not that great. Win the ball and just play it simple. That's it. And, and in particular, find me as often as you can. So, okay, <laughs> I'll do that. Or to early on when I played a ball into him, he says, play with more pace. I go, what do you mean? Um, you know, nothing is on. He says, Thomas, the ball speaks as well. If you play a ball hard into me, I know there's somebody behind me. The ball is telling me that. The pace is the ball is telling me that. So I just have to play it back and, and go somewhere else. One touch. If you play with a little bit less, then you're telling me timing space, Johan. You can turn. You know, uh, those those little things that... that I never even thought of, um, came back almost each each and every day. The way he, he explained uh, triangles to me through architecture. You know, in, wow. in, in, in Holland, we have we have houses on the canals. We have a lot of canals. We're in Venice of, of the north, so to speak, in the Netherlands. A lot of canals. The Anne Frank houses are one of the canals. And on the top of those roofs, they're all triangular um, rooftops that, that, that are, are staying up uh, vertically. Some of them are big and some are small. So he took a photo book and he showed me a a, uh, uh, a big triangle. And he goes, Thomas, because the game's all about triangles. Center back, right back, number six. That's a triangle. 
left center back, left back, number eight. That's a triangle. Ten, which is the central guy, nine, and the seven. That's a triangle, right? The six, the eight, and the ten. That's a triangle. And, and he says the size of the triangle means the bigger we have the ball. The triangle is going to be as big as possible. So we got to go vertically and horizontally. We got to stretch ourselves and stretch the opponent. And then we can play underneath in smaller triangles. When we lose the ball, the triangles need to become smaller. We need to be more compact, right? Force play to the outside. Don't allow a central penetration. You know, things like that, where he's used architecture to, uh, to explain things to me, where he used the ball, speaks uh, to me as well. Those are things that I, I took home with me and, and I've used with, uh, um, 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 with, uh, with, with, with players. He used to take one day, he took a, a, a domino set and he put out um, 11 guys in a pretty interesting formation and he pushed the goalkeeper and all the dominoes fell forward, you know, like dominoes do. Yeah. And he says, that's how we defend, Thomas. Defending, uh, there's a word, Dorfverdeven. <laughs> when, when the nine steps to the, uh, to the left side at center back, the ten will fall towards the right side at center back, right? The eight will step towards their six. Boop, 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 boop. And we play 1v1 in the back. And force, which people talk about right now, the three or five second rule of pressing and gagging pressing. Cruyff talked to me about that in 79 and 80 wow. through a domino set, you know? <laughs> and, and he would put that domino set on the half of the opponent because that was also his philosophy. We always play dominant football. We always play on the half of the opponent. We always play technical attacking football, you know? And that my teams, be the Tampa Bay Rowdies, the Washington uh, uh, DC United, my under 20 teams, we scored goals. We gave up some of those goals, but that was part of playing with risk, obviously. It was pretty brilliant the way he, uh, he defined it and, and, and where to press exactly and, and using the sideline as your friend. He goes, you know, let it travel. Let it travel a little bit. And as soon as the ball travels to the left back, that's when we go. We cut down the pass to the, uh, to the, uh, the goalkeeper. That's our number nine. Boop, boop, boop. The, the, the left side of the fullback comes inside, picks up. One of our center backs steps into midfield. Okay, play 1v1. We double on the ball and make, make play predictable. And we don't have to win always the first one, Thomas. But the second one becomes harder. The third one becomes harder because we press. They'll cough it up sooner or later. <clears throat> but the sideline is our friend because that left fullback can play to the left because the ball will go out of bounds. So now it's either back to the goalkeeper. We cut that one off. All right, we're centrally with numbers. So let's play into the numbers because you can pick it off there and go to goal. And if you look at a lot of goals are scored because of mistakes and turnovers in three or less passes. Um, you know, Jurgen Klopp and, and all those guys are expended on that a little bit. But those were, those were conversations I had with Cruyff in 79, 80 and 81. Uh, it was so far ahead of his, his time. He showed me drawings of La Masia before La Masia wow. was built. He built La Masia with his own hands, basically, and then included uh, a, a cook uh, for nutrition, that included classroom sessions, because he, he, he knew that education was still important as well. And that's, look at what they produced, obviously, all the way back to Savis and Yestas, Messies of the World, and you see again a little bit, a little bit of an upsurge of La Masia 
think five guys started uh, in in the last game uh, against PSG, which wasn't a great game, but uh, we see some of those kids now getting an opportunity. Yeah, thank thank you for sharing that. Um, and then I, I have to ask, uh, when you look up, you know, your name on Google and you look at images, there's a picture of you and Maradona. Uh, I'm, I don't know what time period it's from, but I'm just curious what uh, what that story behind that image is. That was an image I got to know uh, Diego in, on some of my travels to Argentina through a, a player that played for me, uh, Pedro Marianes. In since the NASL died, it was quite a few leagues that, that tried to come back. And that was the APSL, uh, which, by the way, we won that, that year. We played it we, in, in, in 80, 89, I think it was, or 90, maybe. Um, and I used to travel to Argentina um, frequently because I loved, uh, I loved the Bombanera, I loved Boca River. I always tried to go to a Boca River game if I, if I had the opportunity once a year, once every two years. And I used to take my other 20s uh, to Argentina to play good games, but also to give them a feel of what it's like to go to the Bombonera and watch Boca River, which is pretty intimidating, by the way. And mm-hmm. for our white, middle, middle, upper class guys, especially the first group with Jet Marshall, you know, Stanford kids that were like, oh my God, is this really what happens, you know, in, in international football? I said, yeah, yeah, guys, welcome to the real game. <laughs> um, so even off the field, those were great experiences for these guys that they, speak fondly of now and 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 understand that as i understand why soccer is a religion in in, in south america because the, the trip you took us on coach that was awesome great learning experience both on and and off the field um so diego traveled to the united states in 90 i think it was and, and stayed with uh, with the player that played for me and we got to know each other and we we had some interesting nights let's put it that way <laughs> that's so funny oh my god no yeah I, I think that's so cool how you gotta like interact with him like all that stuff with like cry that'd be lots of cool influences in your life so it's very nice to hear yeah about that. yeah i did, did clinics uh with with pele and wow. barbados and the cayman islands uh, i was very very fortunate as a very as cool. a nobody to get to this country and meet all these stars and cultivate with some of them relationships that still are, are lasting uh, that was that's pretty pretty awesome, and I, I'll cherish that for the rest of my life. Be it uh, be it hanging out with hanging out and playing with George Best, be it n- be nutmeg by George Best in <laughs> what, he, what he claims to be the best goal he's ever scored when San Jose beat us, uh, the Fort Lauderdale Strikers in San Jose in either eighty or, or, or eighty one. If you go to NESL goals of the year, I think it's either 81 or 82, it's it's that goal there. And I'm the guy that has to mark best pretty much throughout the game because I'm the number <laughs> six, he's a 10, and it just gets around me, but he gets around four or five other guys and just curls it in the top corner uh-huh. that became the, the, the goal of the year. And also in some of his books, people ask him, what do you think is your best game, the goal you scored for Ireland or for Manchester. No, he goes, no, it's, it's the goal I scored in, in, in North America. So wow. <laughs> just being able to so cool. hang and listen and play with and against some of those great stars has been a blessing, without a doubt. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, we, we really appreciate hearing about that. And, you know, so we're going towards the end of the podcast. So we'll get to the back four quiz in a second. But before that, I did want to ask one more question. Um, When I told my dad that we were recording with you, he actually told me that he... Well, was curious about this. I wanted to get an answer from you, but 
he uh, so so we watch bn sports a lot like you know ever since i was a kid just like all the like la liga like whatever and all the stuff that's on there he noticed that like on every episode you like religiously wear a bow tie while no one else on the show does and you always do that i was just wondering is that like is there a reason you do that has it just always been your thing or what's what's the reason for the bow tie yeah yeah i i my, my first gig i i uh i left as i said again vc united and i still had a year left of my contract so they asked me if i could help them with some pr and one day they asked me would you mind doing some color for our dc united games he said yeah absolutely so I, I met with Dave Johnson. Dave Johnson is the play-by-play guy. He's been there from day one, by the way. Wow. Pretty amazing every year. And I said to him, what, should, what do we wear in there, you know? I mean, how does this work? And he said, well, I'm going to go with a tie and a jacket and blah, blah, blah. He was actually the one suggest, but if you want to be a little bit different, why don't you do a bow tie? <laughs> so this is now 19, so... I won a championship in uh, 1999 right? with DC United. So that's in 2000. So 20 years ago, I started wearing <laughs> bow ties. Um, I did DC United games. I did some Chivas USA games too, because I was the head coach of Chivas, but let go. <laughs> Talked about, but after 10 games, I got fired, but I had a three-year contract. So I did some games there. So I picked it up again in 205, 206. Uh, and then I didn't really do any television until about uh, six years ago. Wow. My first assignment with BN was the day of the game, Ray Hudson, who calls the Barca games, obviously yeah. Ray Hudson is one of the brilliant ones. My former teammate and roommate for the Fort Lauderdale Strikers calls yeah. me and said, Thomas, Thomas, I know you want to get into, uh, into uh, uh, TV. If you can be at the airport in three hours, uh, we need a sideline reporter for an away game of the U.S. against Guatemala and World Cup qualifying. And that was six years ago, and here I am with BN and obviously wow. with Shaw Brown and, and CBS. I called the Inter-Miami games as, as a radio, which is awesome, by the way. A uh, new experience as well. Um, so I'm, soccer really is still running through my veins. That's amazing. Yeah, those are awesome, awesome stories. Thanks. Um, so now we'll, we'll transition to the to the back four quiz. Um, Prajit, you want to start us off? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I can get started with the first question. So four questions. I uh, got the first one up now. You started your coaching career with St. Saint, uh, John Paul 11 Academy in Florida. What is their mascot? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, a Pope, maybe. Is <laughs> <laughs> the Eagles, the Eagles. Oh, the Eagles. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I had that wrong. Oh, my God, guys. That, that was my first coaching gig. Very good. <laughs> Very good high school soccer, baby. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. All right. Next question. So you briefly coached uh, Chivas USA in their inaugural season. Um, name the only player that on that roster that still plays professionally. Oh, my God. <laughs> Born, Jonathan Bornstein. No, no. Uh, oh, well, it was uh, maybe is I have he it still, wrong. Is he still in Mexico right now? He's playing for Chicago Fire, so I think I was looking at a different roster. I had a uh, Brad Guzan was. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, great story too. Everybody said I was crazy because I, I picked Brad as the first uh, pick in the draft, and I said a oh, goalkeeper, wow. and I, I, I said, yeah, I'm going to build a team around this guy, and I'm telling you, he'll be in Europe in two years, which which happened actually for for Brad, which was great. Jonathan Bornstein came a little bit later on the roster um, and is 
played then in many years in, in, in Mexico and is still playing in Chicago, but Brett Bazamiel was the Atlanta United. I, I should have known that one for sure, but I'm glad I mentioned Bornstein, who's also still playing. Yeah, but you looked at you looked at his first year roster, I'm sure. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah correct. He, he was brought in the year thereafter, Bornstein. Okay, got you. Cool. Yeah, and then before this uh, next question, uh, I am a big Atlanta United fan uh, from from Georgia. So thank you for Brad uh, Guzan for uh, making sure that he, he he did well. We appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. great story about him, by the way. Yeah. So I I, I find out about him. He's in South Carolina, obviously. Um, and I'm looking for a goalkeeper for my under-20 team. So I go to a, a tournament, and they're playing in the finals, a uh, youth tournament, and he's playing for the Chicago Shockers, I think it is, or, or, yeah. And I walk up, and I go to the coach, I introduce myself, and say, I'm here to look at uh, Brett Buzan, potentially bring him in with an under-20 camp uh, as my goalkeeper. He goes, he's playing on the field. He's a better field player than a goalkeeper. <laughs> Which is funny, and he played in the field, and I'm telling you, he was not bad. Uh, wow! I'm still, I'm still glad I picked him as, as the number one <laughs> pick uh, as a goalkeeper because look at his his career. Yeah, that's so funny. Oh my god, <laughs> that's awesome. But yeah, okay. Third question. This one's kind of interesting. So, how many more teams have you worked for or managed than played for? And we'll make this one a multiple choice one. So the options are. Oh my god! <laughs> how many teams have I coached for than I played for? Yeah, how many more teams have you coached or like managed for than played for? And then your options are four more teams, five more teams, or six more teams. I, you might have maybe missed the team I played for. Oh, really? Uh, and I, are you including the under 20s? Yeah. Okay. All right. Then I go for six. Six? Okay. The answer I got was four. I'll, wow. I'll <laughs> I think your audio cut out. Uh-uh. What a career. <laughs> Which also means I lived in uh, close to 20 cities in this country, by the way. <laughs> wow, in 40 years. Which is not bad either. That and is- I love traveling, so it's a good thing. Okay, so that's uh, 0 for 3 right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one. Maybe you'll, you'll get this one for sure. So, what was the highest ranking you achieved with American Samoa? Oh, gosh, you're killing me, dude. <laughs> uh, I know that we're, we were the worst at one point in time. So, that was, that was 200 and whatever it was, 15. Yeah. I think we, were, we went up 27 spots. Uh, we ended up in... Uh, 189 or 176. Oh, very close. Very close. We had 173. Ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was in the 70s. Okay. That's funny. Oh, my God. But, yeah, no, uh, that, that concludes the back. Okay, so I was close with Bornstein. And yeah, no, you're uh, in. Right. We'll cut you some. Whatever, correct. Okay. <laughs> I'm not feeling too bad about this. Yeah, no, that was fine. <laughs> funny. Oh, my God. But yeah, no, we would like to, you know, thank you again on our behalf for like having you on. It's like, you know, it's great talking to people of your status. We've both been admirers of yours and U.S. soccer for a long time. So, you know, this really does mean a lot to us. And before we conclude our episodes, we like to uh, ask our uh, guests just for like some advice for because, you know, we're both college students. Most of our listeners are probably around the same age as us. So, 
you know, for, for your question, I wanted to sort of tailor it differently just to conclude. I was wondering, so I watched a recent documentary on Netflix called The Playbook, which is about uh, coaches and the, how they apply their philosophies on the field to life. So I was wondering just, you know, through playing soccer, through coaching, what are some philosophies, ideas, or just, you know, some advice that you learn on the pitch that you think is really important to apply to life as well? That's that's the great thing about, about sports and in particular about soccer, since it's the international game, that there are so many life lessons. And I've been very fortunate to have traveled to all continents except um, except Antarctica. I've been to 50 plus countries, maybe even more in the world. And somehow we all speak the same language when it comes to, to football. Um, be it in a game with guys that don't necessarily all speak the same language, which we see more and more in international football. You know, you foreign coaches, every team's got five or six or seven or eight nationalities. So the, 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 the ball became a language uh, of itself, which is, which, is, which is beautiful. In terms of, of, of life lessons uh, that sports teach you, it's, it's the things that you try to instill in your, in your players, in your children. Um, you know, being a, a, a good teammate, uh, respecting the game, just like you res- have to respect your, your peers or your, 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 your elders or your, your, your teachers. Um, wholesomeness, you know, I mean, I'm 64, but I'm very fortunate because I played the game. I was able to put my body in a position uh, to understand uh, nutrition better. I look at labels now. It might be small things, but I taught my under-20 players too. I used to take them to Publix when we were you know, on, a, on a local trip with the nutritionist and, and talk about sugar intake. And, and guys now still apply that in their own lives and apply that towards their own children. You know, that, 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 that food becomes important, not just pre-game meal, but throughout your, 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 your life. Um, how to deal with success uh, and, and sport teaches you uh, some hard lessons sometimes when you think you're on, on, on top of it. So that translates into uh, the world as well, you know, overcoming adversity, obviously, that could be, in my case, uh, a loss of a, a daughter. Uh, but, but the game reached out to me and, 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 and the game... Uh, uh, taught me and, and, and her some, some real uh, valuable things that you, you, you carry with you. Uh, and, and what I'm trying to say is life is, is precious and you got to enjoy every moment and, and sports allows us to enjoy every moment. And not all players always embrace that. So you, you have players that are, are frustrated and negative and, and, and that was one of the great things about Jan Cruyff too. He goes, enjoy the moment. Thomas, this is wonderful. Look at us, green grass, uh, earth, uh, you know, uh, heaven. Um, and yes, going to war with, with our guys that have our backs against the opponents. But when it's all said and done, we, 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 we have a beer. Um, you know, those, those things, focus and concentration, just like in the classroom or when you're interviewing for, for, for a job, which is the same as trying out for a team. That's what I told guys, you know, stay away from your weaknesses and, and, and utilize your, your strength. 
Um, that's how you can impress me, obviously, because at the end of the day, uh, it only takes one mistake uh, to, to lose a game. Um, and that's the same in, 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 in life, obviously. So from deriving enjoyment on and off the pitch uh, to the camaraderie, uh, to doing the same thing with your, your, your family. And for young guys like you that are, are having to multitask, which athletes have to do as well, you know? I mean, listen, it's, it's, it's not easy. In the old days, a road trip was three, three days on the roads, and it sounds great, but the travel is not easy. Most international players would tell you the game itself is easy. But to travel from LA to New York to play a game and sitting in the Dallas airport uh, to transfer to another play for three hours, that's a, that's a, 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 a killer, but also an appreciation of every city we go to. Cruyff made a point to do something culturally uh, in a city. And I made a point of taking my 20s to foreign trips and to do one cultural thing, be it in Peru going to Machu Picchu, be it in Argentina going to this, this uh, Recoleta neighborhood where one of the beautiful graveyards are with these stones and you know, uh, you know things like that. And, and it might hit one player differently than another, uh, look at architecture in, in Prague or in, or, or in Amsterdam. Uh, broaden your horizon. Uh, important for American players back then was think outside of the box because a lot of players weren't able to do that because of their experiences with coaches and overcoach as well. Step out of your comfort zone. Fail at times because that's going to happen in life too, guys, not just on the field. How do we deal with wins and, and, and losses? How do we rebound? Uh, how do you deal with your teammates or the guy that made a mistake um, I took them up team building trips, you know, going on a two-story building and letting guys fall backwards towards their teammates who don't catch them uh, to build trust and, and all those things. So for you guys, it's all about uh, multitasking, uh, making sure you, you stay in tune with uh, what's, what's important and, and learning from guys that have done the business, so to speak, be it Greg Wall, be it uh, Luis Miguel Etzgaray, be it Shaw Brown, that can give you pointers as well in terms of uh, how to put podcasts together and how to get get it out to uh, to uh, to viewers. You guys are on LinkedIn already at a young age, which is which is great. So, um, you know, all the things that we talk about, sports and and and, and life, just intertwine so easily and so. Uh, fluently uh, through osmosis uh, that we, 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 we can disconnect one from, uh, from, from, uh, from the other. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for, for speaking with us. It's really been a pleasure. We've done about 14 episodes and this has definitely been my favorite. So it really means a lot oh, of time. So we really appreciate it. Thanks for having me guys.